I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwein, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwein, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Du. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of one sentence a day. Life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Hey, everybody. Here we are. It's great to be back with a live episode, well, live to us anyway, after having a best of episode last week on fighting fear. Glad to be back with Steve because my last live podcast was with Sylvia Moreno Garcia and you were not able to participate. So it was just ladies only for that one. So I'm glad you're able to rejoin Steve. Oh, my pleasure. And we have a guest today. Also, oh, this, was this is a good thing. Yes. <laughs> and, and we have an amazing guest today, Daniel Krauss. We'll bring him on later. But first, you know how we do. We're just going to talk a little bit about what's going on. say amen so how are you honey i know what you've got going on 
Because you're well, doing great with your Star Wars It's novel. the usual thing. I'm working on the Star Wars novel really hard. I've got basically five weeks to deliver it. And I have to have a certain amount of confidence because there's still the kitchen is still really messy. But I have to have confidence based upon prior experience that everything will come together by the time the guests are sitting at the table. So, you know, January 1st is what I'm aiming at on that. And that is my commitment. And we will, it's always going to be a race to see whether or not everything can happen. Assuming that there are no emergencies over the holidays, I think that there's a really, that, that I'll be able to meet that deadline. And then of course yeah. we have other things going on as well. So, but I'll just switch that over to you. Well, you have, is it a secret to say you have a cover reveal coming up? Am I allowed to even say you have no, a cover reveal no, coming up? No, it's no, it's not a secret at all. The cover reveal will be on the 8th of December, and they'll also reveal oh my God, the, it's the so title good. at the same time. Yeah, I like the, yes, I like the cover a lot, so considering that they good. didn't have, they didn't have uh, text to work from to, they, to be able to, to guide descriptions and so forth. I think that they went with a, a more impressionistic cover that has a very strong central image. And I won't say anything more mm-hmm. about that because you know, it's not, it's not yes. mine to say. But I think the it's, fans are going to be very happy. They will. And it's something I wasn't even expecting on the cover. I was like, oh, we're going there. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> so for me, it's, you know, since the WGA strike has been over, we've been resuming our meetings with the, the teams that we're working with to adapt, you know, work and try to bring it to the the small screen, at least. Uh, the only one that's been announced is the Reformatory, which is with SK Global and Kaplan Missouri. And yeah, I'll probably know my high school English teacher, Mitchell Kaplan, is on our team. So it's always fun having those team meetings. But we're working on a pilot revision for the other project, which has not been announced. And I'm very excited because, you know, we talk about this a lot, Steve. You go from the phase of writing, especially when it comes to notes and executive notes, where it's like ticking off boxes or typing is what it can feel like to when it like grabs hold of you and you feel like you're back in a creative endeavor again, rather than a prescriptive endeavor, if that makes any sense. Well, so, I mean, I think that there are phases of projects that goes through, and I think that you can shift between different aspects of your personality. One thing might be, you know, you, you do this in the editing or planning stage, then you do this in the flow stage. You might call that child and adult or whatever. But there are definitely times when you have to shift the way you look at something, you know, where at one point you're focusing on the moment and in another point you're looking at the totality of the process and moving back and forth between those two things can be a little stressful or it can be inspiring depending on whether or not you've you've gotten slightly addicted to or at least appreciative of what happens when you shift perspectives on a, on a problem? Every time you shift the perspective, you use a different model or a different time frame, or looking at the resources, or looking at your allies, or whatever. With a with a book, it sh- might be shifting between thematics and scenes and characters and plot, you know, and those things. And, and looking at it from all those different, each time you shift a perspective, you see different things. And the same thing is true if we, if we go between the creative aspect and the production aspect. You know, those are different ways of looking at the same process. And man, if you want to work in this industry, you better be able to shift. Yeah, that's the thing, you know, revision, especially, I think has been the thing that that challenges me, I have to like step away from the original for a while, which is we had all, you know, we had a long time to step away from the original, and then reimagine it with 
enthusiasm, I guess, is the hard part, you know, to let go of the attachment to what was. Because, you know, in that initial meeting, when you're going through notes and they're like, oh, change the opening, change this, change that. You're like, ah, I love the opening. But honestly, I think our opening now is way better. So well, yeah, does, does it have to be a light bulb? Is yeah. the, you know, the classic yes. nonsense. No, but we, we're working with great executives all around. Yeah. So I feel really happy about that. Happy about that team. But you know what? I'm very eager to bring on our guests because I'm we should absolutely focus it. This is a whale we've landed. No, just <laughs> but boom. Where's my where's my sound effects for the rim shot? Ah. Anyway, Daniel Krauss is the New York Times bestselling author of more than a dozen novels and graphic novels. He co-authored The Living Dead with legendary filmmaker George A. Romero. Now, I don't get jealous a lot, but I'm a little jealous that he met Romero and I didn't. But I digress. With Guillermo del Toro, he co-authored The Shape of Water, based on the same idea the two created for the Oscar-winning film. So collaboration is a thread in his career. Also with Del Toro, he co-authored Troll Hunters, which was adapted into the Emmy Award-winning Netflix series. He's won two Odyssey Awards and The Death and Life of Zebulon Fitch. Finch. I hope I'm pronouncing Zebulon right. Was named one of Entertainment Weekly's top 10 books of the year. This isn't even on here, so I'm just going to say this because I know this is a part of the horror community. His latest novel, Whalefall, was on the cover of the New York Times book review. Please welcome to our studio, Daniel Krause. Am I pronouncing everything right? Because yes. I w- will go back and change it. Yes. No, you got it. There's also way more people in this room than I thought there were. <laughs> you know, it's very deceptive that way. They're so quiet <laughs> until they're not. But thank you so much for coming on our little podcast. And I, we, I've we, i been on a panel with you in the past. We know each other through the horror community but I feel like this is the first time we're really getting a, a chance to chat. And certainly you've never met Steve before. And right. first of all, I just want to congratulate you as a horror person to horror person. When another one of us ends up on the, the cover of the New York Times book review, it is like the clouds parting and the sun huh. shining through. I mean, it's like, what? After all the genre oh, bias. Hallelujah. <laughs> after all the genre bias we've experienced, all the... You know, the upturned noses at genre. It's just like, okay, finally. And I, I want to start with that because if it's anything like what would happen with me, I got reviewed in the New York Times and we knew we were going to be reviewed, but we didn't know how long it would be yeah. or what, what was it going to be a bullet point paragraph. You know, did you know you were going to be on the cover? No, not at all. I, I felt the same way. I, I thought maybe I'd get a couple sentences, you know. So um, let's go back to that day. What was that day like when that review came out? <laughs> wild. I mean, as you know, like the New York Times book reviews, they they come out online before the paper comes out. Mm-hmm. And so I saw when it came out online and it had all this artwork and it, and it was really long. So so there's no there's no cover to the online version. So it just seemed like wow, this is this is a full full page review that's really amazing it wasn't until like a, another week had passed till the i i just so sort of randomly saw online that the cover and i was like is that a whale <laughs> and sure enough it was it was the whale so yeah that I mean, that was amazing and i believe you know just a few weeks ago 
I think is it Elizabeth Hand who wrote the the, the Washington Hill Post sequel. She was on the oh, cover. Yes. So oh. so yeah, it it is nice uh, to see those things happening. It's you know as you know, you guys share you know the the love of the genre and know how important it is. And what's so vital about horror is they're sort of the canary in the coal mine in, in a good way. Mm-hmm. Like the changes in art, they tend to, to come from the outside, the, 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 what, what are at some point the fringes and horror, it always happens in horror first, I think. And mm. so it, horror always feels to me like the bellwether is a better word for changes to come. So it, it was, it's always nice to see it happen. It's great. And, and just so in case you haven't read Whalefall, you're one of the few. It is a novel literally about a man who is swallowed by a whale. And I hope you don't mind me saying, Daniel, when I tell people about this book, I often say now that could be the premise of a Tubi movie, right? Ah. But he writes it in such a way that it is so much it's literature it's like more than that it's about it's about grief it's about loss it's about survival obviously which is a thread that runs through a lot of horror and i know you just came off a huge tour and at a certain point you get sick of talking about things when you're touring but what what would you what do you want to tell the audience about what inspired whalefall why getting swallowed by a whale well i mean it's not like i had a lifetime of whaling and sailing behind me you know <laughs> I grew up in Iowa, so you can't get much more Midwestern and landlocked than Iowa. And so, so it was the 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 whales weren't something I was passionate about. They they certainly are now, but it wasn't something I was passionate about at the moment. But I happen to see this viral video. There's a few out there actually of people who end up in the mouths of of whales. They don't get swallowed because most whales have these tiny little throats. But people will end up in the mouths if they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I saw this viral video and I had a, a flash of an idea. And normally my ideas take years and sometimes decades to sort of form. This one happened instantly. And I immediately knew not only was this an uh, unusually good idea, but that it had a certain power to it that everyone would everyone sort of knows this story, whether it's from the Bible or just Pinocchio or whatever. Like Mm. everyone sort of has a sense of, you know, I like to say sort of in, we have a primordial memory of when we were beings that were hunted, you know, like we weren't the dominant species and we had to worry about being chopped up by teeth and swallowed and all those things. So this had a, that kind of pull on me and I thought it might on other people. And because the idea felt so primal, I wanted to, match it with that uh, an equally primal relationship which to me was the first relationship we ever have which is generally parent child so it all came together within like a day which is madness and then you know at the end of that first day i was on the phone to whale experts and whale scientists and was really dropped everything else i was working on and really just spent the next few months just researching whales so it just grabs you. And and I think, I mean, for me personally as a reader, and one thing I talk to my horror students about is grief as a, a doorway to horror. This isn't supernatural horror. Often it's a portal to the supernatural. In this case, we're talking about a real life creature horror. But the loss of his father is part of 
uh, such a big part of the driving drumbeat of this story, like literally searching for your father's remains and no good deed goes unpunished because now (laughs) you're, you're not only separated from your father in every possible way. There was this complicated relationship. His remains were never found. And now you're about to be swallowed by a whale. How did you decide that you wanted to weave that grief piece into the story? And how do you think grief works in, in horror in general? Well, I mean, it started out in a very practical way. Like when I, on that first day when I was talking to whale experts and just trying to find out if it was physically possible, if it was scientifically possible. Because my idea was the idea of being swallowed by a whale has been done sort of metaphorically and kind of abstractly. I wanted to do it with 100% scientific accuracy. Like that sounded like a cool challenge to me. And so those initial phone calls were just like, could anyone be swallowed by a whale? And I found out that yes, if it was a sperm whale, mm. um, but it'd have to be a very, a pretty slender person. Mm-hmm. And that physical guideline made me think, well, this person's probably going to have to be maybe a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the whale sort of told me what kind of character I would need to have in a, in a, in a sense. So I said, okay, if this is a teenager, why would he be in uh, in the water, mm-hmm. you know, particularly uh, dangerous waters? And I was like, well, who does a teenager know? They don't, you know, they know the parent. I mean, you know, I get it. And yeah. so in very practical ways, the 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 subject handed me sort of the the basic blueprints of, or, or at least the kind of age demographic that I was mm. dealing. And then the rest kind of came naturally. I was like, okay, well, he's in the water. Maybe he's looking for something. Maybe he's looking for remains. Remains of who? Well, who do he know? His father. And it it was constructed out of practicalities, but then very quickly became something much more meaningful. I've written. It's funny. I was listening recently to your interview with Stephen Graham Jones, and I was shocked by how much commonality there was between our approaches. You'd asked him, you know, what what is a consistent thread to his work. And he said, fathers and sons. And that is the same answer I would give. Mm-hmm. I've been writing about fathers and sons for 21 books. The, the, the bio you read was out of date. This whale fall is actually my 21st book. Oh yeah. It was um, way out of date. It didn't even mention whale fall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but, so I've been writing about father and son for a long time and I tried to kind of like Stephen, I, there's a point where I tried to say, okay, I've, I've, I've done this. I, particularly in my early books, I was writing about it. I was like, I got to move on. And I sort of successfully put it aside and focused on other things. But once I sort of uh, settled upon doing a a parent-child, I knew that I sort of acknowledged that I've been writing around it a little bit. Like, And I never had dug through the heart of it. Oh, What if I just took this on for once and for all and just wrote straight up, the father and son book that I've been sort of afraid to write and just dealt with it. That explains a lot. That explains a lot about the book's appeal and why it's such a good book. So, yeah. It also makes me ask the question, if you got that out of your system, would you now for your next project, ask yourself, what's the next major concern that I have? And rather than dancing around it, let me go straight through it. Yeah, it was an interesting question because one thing I don't want to do is, you know, like there are authors out there who I've seen who it it almost looks like they're going down a checklist. 
And I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to say this is going to be my issue book about this issue and this is what, this issue and just sort of feel like I'm mining various traumas. I, I This one is extremely personal to me. Just like Stephen was talking about mongrels, whale fall in, a, a, except for the parts with the whale, it's very autobiographical. So I don't want to force that. I want to, you may be exactly right, Stephen, but I want to let that sort of come to me naturally. Yes. Uh, you know, In other like, words, I, you, you, you talked about how your ideas will bake for years or decades. What you're kind of saying is, to me, you're kind of saying, this is something that I think I should do, but I'm going to wait for my subconscious to tell me when it's time to do it. Yeah. And not only that, it probably is already telling me that. Mm -hmm. Like, like I said, I sort of stopped writing about fathers and sons for a while. And chances are I've been writing about something else. You know, like when, you know, when I was a guest of honor at the SoCoCon, they they do this interview with you, right? You, you've done this. You, you know what I'm talking about. Sure. And Kathy Kojo was interviewing me and she had this whole theory that all my books were about found families. And so when someone else looks at your work, they might be able to see these sort of commonalities that I'm not seeing yet, but I may wake up one day and say, you know what, Kathy was right, or somebody else was right. And, or I'll just come, I'll just stumble upon it myself and say, wow, I have been, there is something else that, that has been, you know, fueling these other two thirds of my catalog that I just haven't been able to see clearly yet. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. You know, Great. first of all, the, the movement between what we consciously choose to write about and what our unconscious gives us is, is one of the things in art that can be difficult. The question of, you know, if you go directly after a thematic, it can sound like a Hallmark movie. You know, you can't, you can't do that. But if your mind starts presenting you 
with things, with a world and a, and a story or a character that embraces something that is of great interest to you, then it's just your emotion getting behind. You're just using a powerful emotion, searching for yeah. the powerful emotion and getting behind that, which is useful in any arena of life. But one of the things I wanted to touch on is your successful collaboration with one of the great minds in cinema, and especially in genre cinema, George Romero. It Bring would it. Be, it would be remiss not to dive there because you had the opportunity to work with someone who made a real difference. I'm not sure if if there has been a major monster oh, yeah. that has been created after Night of the Living Dead. I'm not, I'm not what would that be? Because he actually created a, a new trope that has been built on by hundreds of other filmmakers and, and Hundred. artists. So I am fascinated by what that process was how you came to do that and in if you'll talk to us a little bit about that i'll be able to spot the questions to ask you but please regale us yeah we just want to live vicariously through you right now well i mean look one of the first times tanana and i met was i i brought you into a live screening remember this of night of the living dead it was during the pandemic yes yeah it was like 2020 and we did a sort of live commentary Right. And that was just, that was a real highlight of that terrible time. Yeah. So, I mean, I could talk literally, we could, we could just run this for 10 hours. Like I could, I don't ever run out of things to say about Ramiro. He was, he was my favorite artist of all, of any medium. I saw another one dead probably at age five, something like that. And then just Mm -hmm. kept seeing it because it was always on TV and his work just made me. He was sort of a surrogate father figure to me. He taught me about, sure, I mean, he made me aware of art and then taught me as I got older, his films continued to teach me about art and then just teach me about metaphor, what what metaphor is, taught me about just about kind of how to live one's life, you know? So let's stop there for just a moment because those are both deep. So what did he say? You, You said he taught you what metaphor was. So give us his definition. Well, I I can't speak for him, but like, I think when I, you know, when you see Night of the Living Dead as a five-year-old, or at least if you're me as a five-year-old, you don't, it it is what it is. And you can't think much deeper than that. Probably on my, you know, a hundredth watch as a, as a kid, maybe it started to, particularly the end, you know, when Ben gets shot maybe some of that information started to leak in. I know it leapt in when I saw Dawn of the Dead, which I saw, you know, many, many years after I saw Night of the Living Dead. And that's when I really, truly understood art as metaphor. Like it, it, it was so preposterous to take zombies and put them in a mall that like it had to mean something. And it was, it was done with such like weird integrity that it made me search out meaning for really the first time. And, you know, once you're in high school, certainly college, your brain is programmed differently and you're like, okay, I understand art it has meaning beyond the surface and you're, you're sort of plugged into that. But those were very, I grew up really worshiping two figures and it was George Romero and Rod Serling. And mm-hmm. I couldn't have picked, you know, you, you, those were early days, you know, you had to, mm-hmm. you had, can only watch what your TV put on in front of you. And I could have gotten into He-Man or, you know, some silly thing that would have no bearing on my life. But I got into 
as again, as a five or six year old, Twilight Zone and Night of the Living Dead. And those two people taught me how to be a better person. You know, I could see Night of the Living Dead as an extended Twilight Zone episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can I can see how that could how they could have done they could have done that. The power of that movie. I mean, he set out to make a zombie movie and then through some combination of his own genius and serendipity, a, a metaphor evolved out of the casting, the situation and the times that then powered an entire string of movies. He was working with something. I suspect, I would suspect that you must've had a conversation with him about, you said he taught you how to live in some ways, you know, and that he also taught you about art and metaphor. If you had to try to encapsulate what his attitude was about these things, what would you say? I mean, again, it's hard because I don't want to, you know, speak for him. He was, he was one of those people who threw away so many opportunities uh, to, to make what he wanted to make. You know, his, we know him for Night of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead, but, you know, his Knight Riders, Martin, these kind of smaller films, like he, and then even later in his career with stuff like the highly underrated Diary of the Dead and Survival of the Dead, he never fit well within the Hollywood system. And he, he was, I think, slightly tortured by it because like a lot of artists, you know, he wanted to work on a bigger canvas. He wanted keys to bigger kingdoms bigger budgets. But when he got those things, he was uncomfortable with them. And he always sort of retreated back to his to his roots, to often Pittsburgh, and then eventually Toronto became his new home. So he, he was very interested in having full control of his process. And that's somewhat easier for a novelist to do. I think it's hugely yeah. hard hard when you're dealing with millions of dollars and people who want to fund something. And he, it, it, I think it was hard seeing once zombies really had that big revival in the two thousands, you know, and everyone was getting these giant budgets to make their, their movies. He kind of wasn't, you know, and he kind of got that one shot with land of the dead and still wouldn't really deliver what they wanted, you know, Mm, what do they want? Well, his, I mean, like, I mean, the most classic sort of example, the the process with that movie is that he had cast black leads in all of his other zombie movies. The studio wouldn't let him in this movie. Mm. They, they, I mean, he, he talked about this freely in many interviews. Um, just straight up wouldn't let him. So that's how Eugene Clark got cast as the main zombie. He was like, well, I, got, I don't have to do my best here. So right away, I, I would think that would put kind of a bad taste in his mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it there was there was I think he was tortured. Like he he wanted something, and whenever he got it, it sort of bit him. So I, I feel like I fought, like tumbled far afield of your question. Not really. Uh, no, that's Be- because if if your re- relationship with him was not giving specific you know philosophical positions, then it's any question like that has to be based upon your sort of observations and scattered conversations. And if so, if you give us that, that's as close as you can come to the truth without writing a specific essay and working on it for months. So <laughs> your, your spontaneous thoughts are very, very useful. Tanana, you, you had yes, some more specific questions. I'm still, because I am at heart 
I'm getting better about this, but I'm still pretty shy. Like Steve was very, very close to Octavia Butler. I was very, very shy, never picked up the phone, you know. So you meet an idol and you can sort of wave and say hi and move it on, or you can end up collaborating on him with a novel. So how did you go from fanboy to collaborator? How did that meeting happen? And how did you have the 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 nerve mm-hmm. to walk in stride with a Romero? Well, I I I need to sort of set set the record here because although I had met Romero and we had spoken about things, this novel was something he was writing on his own. Okay. Uh, he he had been working on it for like ten years, and I I often say, and this of course is not should not be a blanket statement that novelists tend to do okay when jumping to screenplays, but a lot of screenwriters can't jump to novels. It. And uh, Romero tried twice in his life to write novels, both both of them with, you know, real flashes of brilliance. And mm-hmm. you could just see how much fun he was having, not having to worry about budgets. <laughs> but in, in both attempts, he didn't finish the, the book. And so what happened was he died. He died in 2017. And I, because I was a super fanatic, I knew he had been working on this book. But I just thought, it will, it'll never get finished. That, it's, you know. And then about a month after he died, that's when his wife and manager called me mm. and said, we have this manuscript. So really there were two separate things. There was when I knew him and talked to him. And then there was this book, The Living Dead. And they said, look, George has been work, working on this for years. And would you be interested in finishing, you know, trying to complete it? So... That's how that happened. And they had, they dug up various notes and he had written, I think, I, I like to say probably about a third of the book, but it wasn't the, the first third. It was like, it was scattered. He had written some of the ends, some of the middle, mm-hmm. he had some notes. And so I had been sort of given the, the, the keys to, to this, to try to unlock what all the missing pieces and there were a lot of missing pieces like this was a as you know a, a gigantic epic and i had to study him in a way that i never had and i had always been a semi-expert anyway but i had to sort of change that because my collaborator wasn't here mm. so i began to really study him and i interviewed his wife a lot and i found out what art he loved you know, and I started consuming that, you know, I would say, what were, I asked her, what were his favorite films? What was his favorite or your music? And I would consume it and, and study it and try to figure out what he was drawing from it that I could see in his work and then see if I could get inspired by this, the same kind of things. Like once I, it was like almost creating a, not a Romero AI so much as sort of a Romero decoder ring. Uh, I like that. And I, and I did sort of start to unlock secrets that I don't think anyone had ever figured out. Can you give us an instance? Yeah. I mean, it's it's easier. I'm trying to think of one. It's easier in the second book. Uh, I'm trying to figure out the remember. Uh, the, the second book is so much fresher in my mind. I understand. What's the second book called? So the second book is, when does this air? <laughs> it airs Sunday. Okay. So I have to be a little cagey. All right. All right. Uh, here <laughs> if yeah, there's something you don't want i'll say the, the news of this of the second project leaked out last year so it's sort of out there but mm-hmm. the official announcement hasn't really 
come out, but he, as I said, he did, he did leave two novels unfinished. And the second one, which is, you know, which I also completed, which is what's fresh in my mind. He had no, he had left no notes for it, but he had written, you know, there were 300 pages of uh, manuscript written, but he had this non-novelist way of just like writing, he keeps expanding the story outward and outward and outward and outward. And it never got to the point where he tied it all back together. So it was my job to come in and sort of figure out where was he going with this, you know, without notes, because I had notes on the living dead. And so there were weird they were strangely named characters, for example. And so I investigated those words. And what do those words mean? What do they refer to? And sure enough, I stumbled across what one of them meant. One of the, the monsters, there's sort of a monster in this book. And what did it mean? And I was like, that opened up a whole can of worms. There's a movie he talks about repeatedly in this book. One specific movie from the 40s that is very obscure. No one knows. No one, no, I'd never seen it, never even heard of it. Start watching that movie, study that movie, and all of a sudden you you realize something. It's it's so hard to talk about that talking about. Yeah, the you're, book. Being, you're being artfully yeah, vague, and so maybe we might need to no, that's withdraw so that great. question because we but, don't want to put you in an awkward situation. A, a whole bunch of things started to unlock, and you realize, wow, he had this grand plan here, and it just took a matter of work and luck to begin to see all these pieces he had planted um so yeah it that had to it, be very exciting i mean it's the honor of my life it, sure. to, working on the romero stuff i mean he i i wouldn't be doing any art without romero it, it just it hurts that he's not here sure. oh my god but also daniel there are so many people they could have called why did they call you well i think you know i think a couple reasons like when i his manager and then his wife they knew i was i mean lots of people are huge fans of Romero, but I was, I had, I guess, impressed upon them, my sort of command of his, his work. And importantly to them, I think not necessarily, you know, his, his zombie movies, which he loved, but those were the movies he felt like he kind of had to make, but his others, Mm -hmm. I don't think when they called me, they had any clue really how seriously I was going to take it. You know, I, again, I, I spent months just trying to get inside of his head. And I had also at the time just come off of two collaborations with Guillermo del Toro that were successful. So uh, it, yes. it, it made sense that they could, they could put those two things together. And like, here's someone who has collaborated successfully. We know his, his love and respect for Romero is, is, is this other thing. Maybe he's, he's the guy to pull it together. And I, I, I don't know that I was the the obvious choice, but I don't think they could have found anyone who would have worked harder on it. An obvious question to me would be, how did working with getting yourself inside Romero's head, how has that had a lasting effect on your other writing? What did you learn from this process? Yeah, it, that's one of the interesting things about collaborations. And I would have guessed, by the way, that I would have done zero collaborations in my life. Like, I'm a very one of the reasons I like to be a writer is I like to work alone, just sitting here mm. in the desk. And then, I, you know, 15 years later, I've done a whole bunch of collaborations. And one of the reasons is I like the the problems collaboration causes because you're you're it's much more evident in movies where you're butting up against someone else who has their own ideas and their own, and it's forcing you to work in new ways, which, 
wakes you up and makes your work fresh again. So you learn different things from different collaborators. And some of them are, you know, purely artistic and some of them are sort of emotional and some of them may be like more on the business side of things. You know, there, I, I think you can look at Romero and there are some, he was, I mean, infamously not a good businessman. So one thing I would not take from him is his, his business side where he, you know, let the wrong people have the rights to his movies and stuff. I think what, once I was deeply into his prose and, you know, had obsessively revisited all his films around all the interviews possible and the commentary tracks and, and everything and interviewing his family. What you come up with at the end is just like integrity. Like you cannot, and I, I am a, you know, a really honest guy. If I could find, you know, elements of his work that I found unsavory, I would, I would be honest about it. This was a man who just like, he, he came alive in these books. Let's go back to living dead. It was when he was writing the zombie scenes, they were fine. When he was writing the character stuff, he came to life. Like mm. it, he was on fire and all of his characters from the jump are highly conflicted, morally gray characters to the point that as you know, somebody who had to pull it all together, if anything, I lightened them a little bit because they were his characters were so aggressively dark in some ways and would and mm. would have these flaws that were, you know, really quite serious. And you're like, how can we spend 600 pages with this character knowing them all right at the jump of these sort of terrible things they've been involved with? So it was a certain type of bravery, I think, of of him believing that you don't have to always like the main characters that you're going to get involved on sort of a, a, a human level. And I tried to maintain as much of that as possible and cool. try to use that in my own work. I mean, I've always tried, tried to be brave in the stuff that I've done, but I think Romero's work has, has inspired me to sort of buckle down on that again. And, and like not one thing you'll notice from the first his first novel to his second is there is no similarities. And so I want to kind of follow that. And had he his way, if you look at his unmade scripts, there's romances, there's Westerns, there's everything, you know, and I want to maintain that. I want to sort of carry that on so I can do, you know, a straight up horror novel and then do this thing about a guy and a whale and then turn around and do a sci-fi epic, which was the next thing I wrote and just like keep it. So nobody, almost in his honor. Like he was, he was trapped in a horror, even more specifically in that a zombie corner. And I want to change, change it up every single time I write. So I want my brand to be that I have no brand. And you I never love that. Never know what you're going to get next. That is, uh, that the is style great. of no style. Yes. I want to, to, to move back to your work in your career here, Daniel. Cause you know, I started publishing in 1995 and there was a lot of excitement about Black commercial fiction then. So I was getting toured for the hardcover, toured for the paperback, lots of travel. It was also exciting when I was in my early 30s. <laughs> but now in 2023, I'm very glad I got the support. But I noticed, and also post-COVID, I do not have the patience I used to have travel. I just wanted to ask you about sort of the double-edged sort of success, because it is great 
to be a New York Times bestseller. It is great that everybody wants a piece of you, wants to greet you. I saw all your social media posts and different restaurants and people giving you whale memorabilia. But how how do you handle the the stress part of that? Because it's not just you just show up and greet people. There's a whole lot involved with with this. And do you struggle with any of that? Yeah. Yeah. And thanks for this question. I mean, again, I think about the Stephen Graham Jones interview where he was like, I wrote 40 books before I wrote The Only Good Indians. I mean, I wrote 20 books. So I'm not quite to his level yet, but I wrote 20 books before I wrote Whalefall. And Whalefall changed everything. It, it's hard because I might, you know, for the first half of my career, I did pretty much no events. And by choice, I was working a demanding full-time job and a was like, I'm going to write on weekends and holidays and I'm just going to, I'm just going to focus on writing. And it helped that I really loved to write and I don't love traveling so much and that kind of stuff and promoting it wasn't one of my cup of tea. So it was easier for me to say that. And then starting with The Living Dead, because I felt I owed it to the Romero estate, I was like, okay, I'm going to start with this book anyway. I'm going to start promoting. And then of course, uh, COVID-19 happened and all those plans sort of got um, disrupted. Yeah, it was hard. It was hard. This was the first time that I sort of succumbed to a, a giant, uh, tour. It feels mm-hmm. physically just hard. Mm-hmm. I'm not a great traveler. So being on a plane every day was, was, was straining. Certainly it's, I mean, as you know, it's like, you have to start saying no to a lot of people and it's, it's, I think I do better. I know for some people it really tears them up to have to say no to people who are nice, who are you like, who are nice to you. So I feel like I do some better than some people with that. Like it doesn't haunt me into the, I sleep, I still sleep. Okay. You know, mm. but it's still hard. Um, it is hard. And they say the road kills, you know, I mean, that's one of the, when I, I, I used to like, the idea mm. of doing stand-up comedy. And I was like, mm, so much time on the road. I don't think that's going to be my life, you know? <laughs> and I was getting sick a lot in the spring for some reason, spring to summer. I, I kept fighting off these, these bugs. And my editor got concerned because I was starting to say, ah, I don't think I can make that, you know, I mean, <laughs> because I was feeling, yeah. and he wanted to call up and make sure I was on board, you know, for touring and yeah. I assured him, I am definitely on board. Oh, no, I love this. I've I've been in the position where you don't get tour support. And it is oh, much yeah. better to get the tour support. So I, I gave him that, oh, yeah, I'm going to be a good soldier. I'm going to do it. But honestly, I was terrified I was going to get sick again. And <laughs> I was, <laughs> and I hate planes. And I hate the flights that people like, wait, I would never plan a flight for myself where I have to get up at 445 in the morning. Oh, my God. On my <laughs> itinerary. <laughs> Several like three o'clock, three thirty wake up times. I mean, just it was brutal. And you know, and I was, uh, I felt the same. I was terrified I was going to get sick. Uh, I'm one of those weirdo unicorns who still has never had COVID. I thought, oh, well, wow. definitely, I'm definitely going to get COVID. I thought. Um, and then, like a week before tour, I I got food poisoning, and so I was like, I was in a weakened state. And I was this mm. is bad. Somehow, somehow, I made it through. And the, but then you may remember, and this is, you know, not trying to bring us all down, but my sister was dying during of the Of course, of course. And so the whole time I'm doing this, I'm getting daily updates about, you know, she's got six weeks left. No, she has two weeks left. She, is, she has four days left, you know. 
so I'm trying to figure out, can I, can I maintain this tour? Do I need to cut it off? And so, and, and, you know, what was so, I mean, there's lots of things about that that were hard, but what was so interesting about it is I felt like I was living the book. So here I am on book on tour for Whalefall, which is about a son who doesn't go see his father on his deathbed. And suddenly I was dealing with, do I need to cut this short to go see my sister on her mm-hmm. deathbed? And it all, you know, ended up, I don't know, you can't say fine, but, you know, I got there a few hours before she died and was able to sort of talk to her. But it was, you know, it's a, it was a, a wild, strange few months there of, of high highs and low lows. Yeah. So um, one question that we have to ask every guest is, what do you do to deal with stress? Yeah, how said, do you do the, the whip sawing of you know high highs, low yeah. lows? What do you do? What rituals or practices or hobbies or things do you do? What processes or interventions do you do to stay sane in the midst of the chaos? In essence, to stay in the eye of the storm. Yeah, this is and this is a great thing you guys do is you you ask this question because I think it's useful to the listeners, but it's also useful to the person you're asking the questions to. Because my my gut answer to that is that I, is that I don't know and I I don't do it very well. Okay. Um, it, it, but I mean, I do have I so I can elaborate that on that a bit, but but it it does make me sort of take take a moment and take stock of what I, I fail to do, you know, like I've been extremely prolific, you know, like I started publishing in 2011 or something like that. And for half that time to have a full-time job and still put out 21 books is kind of insanity. And I've, I think I've paid for that in some ways. Like I've paid for it in stress. I've paid for it in relationships, not ones that have gone bad, but sort of just gone away. You know, mm. I've just been, I've been you, so you didn't have the time and energy to support them. I mean, if there are three I, major arenas that you deal in, you know, the physical, the emotional, and the mental, your stress coping mechanisms can involve any of those things. They can involve hugs. They can involve listening to music. They can involve rough exercise. They can involve mm-hmm. meditation. There are any number of different things you can do. But as you've, you've noted, if you don't take care of those things, something will spin out of control. And it will come back and, and bite you later on, like relationships will dissolve. Yeah. It's like you don't take care of your finances, you know, people right. will come and take your home. So if you, if you had the sense that this, this circus of your life, this, this carousel, this, you know, this thing, it was going to continue to impact you at a high level that you were about to enter into the most fertile and successful period of your life. You were going to be getting all these different offers, taking all these different directions. But if you knew that if you didn't maintain your center, you were going to pay for it strongly. What would you do differently starting today to prepare yourself for that? Well, this is the question. This is the question you've asked me and I need to ask myself. Yeah. Because that period you're talking about is right now. There you go. Is uh, I'm, I've never been, I've never, it's like, you know, you've had these, you you two have had these moments in your career where like suddenly you're getting offers right and left. And there's just, it's hard to say no to some of the, because the bigger ones, because like this is sure is in some way, this is kind of what you've been working for. 
And suddenly there's books and movies and TV and all these things happening. And so, yeah, the, the question is, what do I do? What do I do? You know, because my, my happy spot has always been writing, right? So it's... Yeah, it's, like, it's the it's writing. Like, it's, do you have a physical discipline? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What so do you I do? Exercise, exercise every day. So I've got... Well, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, really good. That's good. If you, t- if, you, if you push yourself into second wind... You know, just like do an aerobic exercise until you get you're tired, 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 and then you come out of it. Just that one thing has a massive impact on stress. Just yeah. just being sure that you go through the thing called the neuroimmunoendocrine response. That right there will hits the reset button on your stress in some really useful ways. And if I can jump in here, because Daniel, I was watching you on social media, kind of knowing what you were going through in your personal life, but also these huge, huge highs that you were having and you're on the road. And I was just like, oh my gosh, that's a lot. So I was actually reaching out to you during that time. That's right. And one thing that happened to me on tour, I wrote a my book, The Reformatory, is about this reform school that has left just generations of young men traumatized because they were so abused there. And when I was on tour on a single day, I spoke to an 88-year-old man and like a young 30-something-year-old man who were both still traumatized. And I was a little shook by those encounters. And it reminded me of why it took me so long to write the book. And it took me breathing. You know, I had a friend who had OG COVID, like before there was treatment vaccine. She, She said all she could do was sit and concentrate on breathing. And when I had COVID, even though I wasn't having lung issues, thank God, that got me through boredom because I didn't even have the energy to watch TV or listen to a podcast. So I do this like inhale for four, hold for four, exhale for eight. It gets me to sleep. It gets me through stress periods and got me through feeling shook on the road because I was meeting these survivors and just feeling like, do I have a right to this story? And is this good for them? Or, you know, all those kinds of questions. So yeah, I would I would absolutely recommend breathing, uh, diaphragmatic breathing. Steve has taught this, you know, and it's something I really picked up from him. But it, it's it's so much more helpful than it sounds like, you know. It's and if you a... don't have a specific teacher or a specific discipline, just every hour on the hour, breathe diaphragmatically for sixty seconds. Okay. Just doing that, deep, slow diaphragmatic breathing. Well, it's another step that changes everything. You're, the stress doesn't become strain, and strain yeah. is what hurts you. So if you're if you're in this, if you're on the roller coaster ride right now, and it is everything that you've ever wanted in life, you can't necessarily back away from it until you find out. Well, how much of this can I take True. before I start costing myself? Because in life, they pay you for how much stress you can take without cracking. So upgrading your stress responses is a perfect way to reward yourself and protect that creative part of yourself. Because it's fun to succeed. It's fun to have those offers, but you have to protect yourself. Yeah. Until it isn't, is the issue. you know. And I I know someone personally who passed away on the road pitching in Hollywood. And that is the cautionary tale that rolls around in my head is because yeah. that's real. That's just real. Yeah. I mean, it, at, at this point in the broadcast, we often talk about the Life Writing Premium program, our year-long program for people at lifewritingpremium.com, because that program is looking at the artist as a holistic unit, that you have a body, you have a heart, you have a mind, you have goals and dreams, and you have the need for discipline, but you also have the need for self-care. And so every week we offer not just writing prompts, but ideas about 
what the artist is and how that artist is an expression of our deep self combined with skill, you know, and planning and strategy. But if you don't start by taking care of yourself, the world will eat all of you that you'll give it. Mm-hmm. If you leave that pork chop on the table, the wolf will grab it. So it's That's- critical that you start by protecting yourself before you end up in the belly of the whale. You know, no, before you well, end up okay. getting digested by what you were chasing. Uh, <laughs> well, Interesting well, metaphor. well said. That is well said. <laughs> But let's bring it back to sort of a, a happier point. What brings you joy, Daniel? I know writing is that. Is that the number one thing, or, or, or close well, to number certainly one? that's that's a big part of it. Like that that's why that's why the self care part is so tricky for me. Is that you know I'm sure we all three of us know writers who it feels like agony for them to write. That is so opposite of my approach. I love writing. I, I yeah, I wouldn't write if that were me. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, it's it's puzzling to me, but I that's like it was. I would write a, if I didn't have relationships that I need to that I need to want to maintain. I'd write at night. I'd write weekends. I just it's my where I'm happiest. So that's a, that's a big part of it. I I don't know what people normally say to this kind of thing, and I don't know. I guess there are no wrong answers. Probably right. I get a lot of joy out of my dogs. Hey, that's a perfect answer. Petting your dog, hugging your dog, walking your absolutely. I'm going to give that some applause, as a matter of fact, because dogs are the best. They're the best. And I say that as a cat person. (laughs) Yeah, I see your cat back there. And normally you'd see two dogs pacing around back here, but I I took them out of the room for this one. Because one time, one of my dogs was humping this dog bed during a a live Zoom. And so I had my hand like this. And I and I was casually blocking, oh. dog <laughs> and and having to talk, so it was like difficult. <laughs> That's and funny. just like some of the you know the most simple basic things, music, movies, you know. Oh uh, my God, Godzilla! D minus one is that what it's called? Yeah, Godzilla minus one. Godzilla yeah. minus one. You've got if you haven't seen that, and if you like Godzilla movies, prepare I, to be amazing. I loved Shin Godzilla. Yeah, so, well, I think that this is better. Oh yeah, this is the best. Yeah. I can't wait. That's a, that's after the original. What what? Where can people find you? And is there anything you need to promote besides Whalefall? People can find me really at danielkraus.com and that'll have all the other links if you're looking for those. No, I mean Whalefall is out now. This mystery or mirror project will be out next fall. Yay! Um, I just sign up for two books from Simon and Schuster. Two new books. And the first of those won't come out until 2025. Okay. So um, you've got a t- little time before the next big tour, hopefully, <laughs> except for the paperback for Whale Fall. Yeah. I mean, well, I don't, when you can talk about it, you know, get in touch with us and come back on. Yeah. It's been so good talking to you. Oh, of course. And I, I, I do want to say that I'm halfway through the reformatory and just absolutely loving it. Oh, um, thanks so much. It's, I appreciate that. It's 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 uh, wonderful. You know, I'm a big fan, and it's just like, you know, one of those books where it's just like, even when I I'm, I read before I go to bed, even when I'm thinking I'm you know I'm too tired to read tonight, I says now nah, I'll open and read a couple pages. <laughs> I read you know twenty pages. So <laughs> congratulations on that, and congratulations, Steve, on the the Star Wars book coming out. Thank That's you. Awesome. 
Thank you. So glad to have you on the show. That's Daniel Krause. Everyone, go on and make yourself the hero or heroine of your own story. The hero in the adventure of your lifetime. Bye-bye, everybody. You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life.